on April 2nd, 1994, a picture editor for the New York Times phoned Kevin Carter to inform him that he had won the most coveted award for photojournalism, the Pulitzer Prize. Carter, a South African native, had spent much of his career covering the apartheid that had torn his nation apart. But it was on a trip he made to southern Sudan where he captured the picture that would make him famous. Sudan was gaining worldwide attention for its widespread starvation, and when Carter arrived, he immediately got to work snapping pictures of of famine victims. After about an hour of witnessing unimaginable suffering, he wanted to take a break from it all. He looked for a place to rest. The sound of whimpering drew his attention to find an emaciated Sudanese toddler, noticeably near death. The little girl was crawling to a famine relief center some 200 yards away. As he crouched to photograph her, a vulture landed behind her. Careful not to disturb the bird, he positioned himself for the best possible shot. After firing off multiple rolls of film, and as the vulture ominously followed the emaciated child, Carter captured the haunting image that made him famous. It was later described as the picture that made the world weep. For several weeks after the picture was published in the New York Times, hundreds of phone calls and letters were received inquiring of the child's fate. So it was no surprise that as Kevin Carter clutched his coveted Pulitzer, he would be asked about the event. There was only one thing that people wanted to know. What did you do after you took the picture? Carter described the scene. He said he waited about 20 minutes hoping the vulture would spread its wings. It did not, and after he exhausted the rest of his film, He chased the bird away and watched as the little girl resumed her struggle. He then sat under a tree, lit a cigarette, and cursed God. Shortly after, he packed up his gear and left. Three months after receiving the reward, Carter returned to his hometown of Johannesburg parked his truck near a stream where he used to play as a boy and took his own life. Suicide at the age of 33. He explained his actions in a note he left inside his vehicle. I'm really sorry, but the pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. That was Kevin Carter's response to suffering in the world. What is your response to it? How do you explain the reason for it? How do you reconcile the goodness of God in a world with so much evil and misery? Some say it can't be reconciled. That a good God would not allow evil. Last week, we discussed what has been called the problem of evil. 
And this argument states, if God is all-powerful, he can prevent evil. If God is all-good, he would want to prevent evil. However, evil exists. Therefore, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. And I've heard atheists use this argument before, and the kinds of arguments that are put forth, this kind of argument is usually by people who are not seeking to understand, but they are seeking to accuse. And behind these kinds of accusations are the work of the accuser, Satan himself. He is a slanderer and is always busy working in the world, seeking to discredit God all with the hopes of turning people away from God eternally. And Satan does this work in the world by promoting the idea that God is unjust. He points to the suffering in the world that occurs. He points to uh, the, the, the sinful man and the ruin that he creates. He points to the devastation that occurs because of natural disasters. And he strives to convince people that God is not good because he allows it. That's what the slanderer does. He accuses God to men, and he accuses men to God. And ultimately, he wants people to curse God, standing in the place of judge against God. Satan's original sin was that he wanted to be greater than God. And when he accuses, he deceives people into thinking that they have a greater standard of righteousness than God does. And he wants you and he wants everyone else to stand in judgment of God and accuse God right along with him. We see this accuser at work in the beginning chapters of Job. Chapter 1, verse 9 reads, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. We looked at this a bit last week, but in this brief encounter, Satan accuses both Job and God. He accuses Job of having no integrity, that the only reason Job worships God is because God gives him things. And in that same accusation, he's slandering God that he's not worthy of worship at all, that he's only worshiped because he gives people things. Now, some might read this and ask why God allows the devil to exist at all. I mean, why endure with such blasphemies? Why not just kill him? If this is the one that brings so much evil in the world, so much pain and misery and suffering, why does God allow him to exist anymore at all? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking these questions. In fact, they're good questions to ask if you ask with the hopes of understanding. And I hope to bring some understanding to us today as we try to answer some of these difficult questions. Now, my goal is to accomplish two things this afternoon. First, I want to demonstrate that Satan, 
who is a principal cause of suffering, is under God's authority. Satan is under the authority of God and is not his own authority. Secondly, I want to demonstrate that God ordains evil to fulfill a greater purpose. That God allows sin and Satan and suffering to exist to fill a greater, fulfill a greater purpose. So, first point, the shorter of the two. Satan is under God's authority. Last week, we looked at Job chapters 1 and 2, and we saw that we live in the midst of an invisible war taking place behind the scenes, and that we have a formidable enemy who opposes God and mankind. And we saw that his destructive work takes place in at least three areas. He has influence over evil men to do evil. He has influence over the elements of creation. And he has influence over disease. And so we saw those three things in the first two chapters. We saw that Satan had used the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to, to, to rob and plunder Job. We saw him use a storm to devastate the house that killed his children. We saw that Satan was able to strike Job from the top of his head to the sole of his feet with sores. Satan did all that. But even though this is true, and even though Satan is a very viable threat to you and your well-being, he does not have authority in and of himself to do anything. In other words, he has a limited power. His ability to do evil is restricted. As, power, as powerful as Satan is, and as much as he is a terrible danger to humanity, he is under divine authority. Meaning his will is always under the subjection of the will of God. Satan does not and cannot act autonomously apart from the parameters set by God. Satan, as the creation of God, is subject to his creator. While it is true that he is in rebellion against God and that he purposes to work against that which is good in the world, he is still under God and cannot act apart from him. That means the Bible does not teach dualism. Dualism is the idea that the world is controlled by two equally opposing spiritual forces. And these two are equals and they are constantly in conflict in battle over one another. Now, it is true that God and Satan are opposing forces, but it is not true that they are equal rivals. For example, Satan is not, not omniscient, meaning he cannot know all things. He is not omnipresent, meaning he cannot be everywhere at once. Nor is he omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Satan is a spiritual power, a great and fearsome power, no doubt, but he is a power under a greater authority. And because of this truth, Satan is never able to hinder or defeat the work of God. Now consider these first two chapters where we find that Satan not only must gain permission to afflict Job, 
But God even limits the extent of his affliction. Chapter 1, verse 12, God tells Satan not to harm Job. It says, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So God says you can destroy everything that Job has, just don't touch him. And then Satan accuses him and says, yeah, but if you touch him, he's going to curse you to your face. And God says in chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So while Satan is doing evil in the world, he is not given free reign to do as he pleases. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. In the Gospels, Jesus is confronted by two demon-possessed men. And they say to, to Jesus in Matthew eight twenty nine, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. You see what's happening here? They see Jesus, and they're like, you're not going to throw us into the abyss yet, are you? Please don't do that. Please throw us into those pigs instead. This does not sound like equal rivals to me. It sounds like they are under the authority of Jesus, and they know it. Satan is not sovereign. Demons are not sovereign in and of themselves. Thwarting the will of God over and over again to where God is constantly frustrated. But God is in control. Another example. Luke 22.31 Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan and these fallen angels must first gain permission to do anything. They're not free to do as they please. I mean, otherwise, think about it. If Satan wasn't under some kind of divine control, he would just be constantly killing everybody. Tornadoes and earthquakes and wars and cancers. I mean, they would be afflicting 10,000 times the number of people. Because Satan is a destroyer, and that's what he wants to do. But we don't see it at that level, because God does not allow those things. Satan is allowed, allowed to afflict, but only as far as it comports with the purposes of God. And if and when God does allow Satan to do evil, it is because he has a greater purpose in mind and plans to use that evil for a greater good. And that brings us to the second point. God ordains evil to exist to fulfill a greater purpose. That's point number two. God ordains evil to exist to fulfill a greater purpose. The Bible teaches that God is perfectly holy, totally separate from sin, 
There is no darkness in him, and everything that he does is good and right and just. He tempts no one and cannot himself be tempted by evil. However, it is also true that God has purpose that evil exists and then uses such evil to accomplish a greater good. So I have to go backwards now. The problem of evil again. If God is all-powerful, He can prevent evil. If God is all-good, He would want to prevent evil. There, however, evil exists. Therefore, God's either not all-powerful or He's not all-good. And I would argue that there is a third option. This either-or proposition is a logical fallacy called the faulty dilemma. You, you, you lead people in an argument and you give them only two options when there is a third option. And I believe the third option is that evil exists by the will of God to bring about the ultimate good. So it's not that God is not all-powerful, and it is not that God is not all-good, but it's that evil exists by the will of God to bring about the ultimate good. I'm going to offer two reasons why God allows Satan to do evil, which produces this ultimate good. Only two reasons. This is a subcategory under the second point. But these are the things I want to communicate today. First, that God ordains evil for His own glory. Why would God allow evil to exist at all? What is this ultimate good that you speak of? God ordains evil for His own glory. Now, it must be stated that purposing evil to exist is not evil in and of itself. All the great confessions in church history communicate this. They all say something like, it is not sin for God to will that sin be. It is not sin for God to will that sin be. And at least one reason that God has ordained evil to exist is to demonstrate His glory. God uses evil as a way to put on display His manifold attributes for all of creation. Meaning, we could not know the fullness of who God is if evil was never allowed to be. When evil is present, and it is seen for what it is, by the hosts of heaven, and by the people of God throughout the ages, and then is overcome and defeated by the wisdom and power of God, He is glorified. Meaning, He is shown to be all-sufficient and all-satisfying. With the reality of sin, Satan, and suffering, who God is in His fullness is put on display for now and forevermore. To put it very simply, if evil never existed, you could never fully know God. 
If evil never existed, you could never fully know God. For example, if evil never existed, how would anyone know that God is merciful? There would be no actions of sin or occasions of evil where God would have to respond with mercy. Or if sin never existed, how would anyone know that God is patient? How could he ever display the greatness of his grace? How could it be seen that God is a God who forgives those who sin against him? How could he be shown as one who is slow to anger unless he's given the opportunity to endure with evil men? How could he be shown to be just or compassionate? How could he be shown to be opposed to evil? If evil were never introduced into the world, how could God be seen for who he is? The reason we understand what straight is, is because we also understand crooked. And what God has done in allowing evil to exist is to put on display for all eternity His manifold attributes of patience and grace and mercy and forgiveness and so on so that it would demonstrate the fullness of who He is and resound in everlasting praise to those who love Him. These are weighty concepts. So I'm trying to pause in between saying these things so that it can have a moment to sort of sink in. And I'm trying to say it in different ways to sort of help us grasp it. There will be a greater amount of joy for God's creation, human and angelic, because God allowed evil to exist and made Himself known through overcoming it, than if it never existed in the first place. And so this glory of God, this revelation of who God is, in light of Satan and sin and suffering, is more eternally valuable than if it never existed to begin with. Picture Adam in the garden. Did Adam know God? Yeah, he met with him every day. They had a meeting place and a time and everything. But if you were to ask Adam at that point, before the fall, is God forgiving? Is God merciful? Is God just? Is God long-suffering? Is God a Savior? Adam would not be able to know those things about God. He might think God is probably those things, but they'd never been proven to any creature ever. There had never been an occasion for God to be shown to be these things. The angels could not know God. Any creature God made could not know God ever. There would always be a limit to knowing and understanding who God is. 
If heaven and earth were always holy all the time, how much can you really know about God? And when you begin to look at all of his attributes, it's a very limited amount that you would know about him. You would know he's eternal. You would know he's creator. You would know he's holy. You would know he's perfect. You would know he's loving. But not much more than that. And so evil existing in the world opens up this whole other dimension of the knowledge of God. It releases all of these attributes of God that would remain forever hidden. No one could ever know them. They could theorize about them. God probably is forgiving if they even had a concept of what that was. And so what God has done in ordaining that evil exist is that He is shown to be supremely valuable to those who fear Him and the knowledge of Him and His attributes are more complete, causing God to receive greater glory and His people to increase in joy by giving Him greater glory. I don't know about you, but so much of my joy in relation to God is what He's done in saving me. I think I just can't believe that God would be so merciful to me and save me the way He's done, the way He's brought Christ into the world as my substitute, the way He's given me everlasting life when I know I deserve nothing. And so it increases my joy, the joy of His creation, the glory that God receives is all based on evil existing at all in the first place. With the introduction of evil, God can be fully known and the most loving thing an eternal God can do is to make Himself known. That is the most loving God an eternal being can do. Is loving thing that He could do is to make Himself known. Is to share Himself. Now, we cannot think clearly when it comes to God sometimes. And we see God exalting Himself and doing things for His own glory. And that sounds like a defect to us. That sounds like a character defect. Like God wants to make much of Himself. Isn't that sinful? We see athletes and we see movie stars and they boast in themselves and we see that pride and that arrogance and we see that it is sinful. But why is it sinful? Take the fastest man in the world. Okay? Don't know who it is today. I remember some years ago it was Usain Bolt. But take the fastest man in the world. God gave him a circulatory system, a skeletal system, a respiratory system, an auditory system, a muscular system. God gave him the perfect combination of form and size and balance and muscle structure. God gave him the right parents, genetically speaking, gave him the right environments, gave him the right people to influence him. God put him at the right place at the right time with the right circumstances to be able to compete and reveal the greatness of his speed. It's all from God. 
And then what does he do? He gets up on that platform and says, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And he goes around boasting in himself. But everything that he is, is by the grace of God. Everything he has ever received, every beat of his heart, all the lung, the air that goes into his lungs, it all comes from God. So his boasting is as if those things were something within himself, which they're not. He's not knocking on his mama's womb and saying, okay, I want this and I want this and I want this. It's not within himself. It's given by God, and yet he boasts as if it's all coming, if he's self-existent. And that is a sin, because he is made to give glory to God. But God, on the other hand, has no dependence on another. He received nothing that was not within himself. He is the source of all life and all beauty and all blessing and all goodness. And when he glorifies himself, it is not sinful, it is righteous. It is righteous when God glorifies himself. That is the greatest thing a being like this could do would be to share his glory and put his glory on display. That's why we exist. That's why the universe exists. Let me give you just a few examples of God showing off his glory. Scripture says that God chose his people for his glory. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. That's why God chose you. For His glory. Scripture says God saves His people for His glory. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God forgives our sins for His glory. Isaiah 43.25 I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake and I will not remember your sins. God's aim in the judgment of the wicked is to make known His glory. Romans 9:22 and 23. Paul says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, that's you, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. God will be praised for all eternity for what He has done, which would have been impossible if evil had never existed. And the list goes on and on, and I could show you all kinds of them. God created us for His glory God called Israel for His glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for His glory. God defeated Pharaoh to show His own glory. And on and on. 
the attributes of God are put on full display because evil was allowed to come into existence. And so what God does for the purpose of demonstrating who He is is to ordain that which He hates. God hates evil and yet He ordains what He hates so that you could know Him. So that His human and angelic creatures could know Him fully. And to know God fully is heaven to know god fully is heaven so god allows evil in the world for his own glory secondly in our subpoint god allows evil in the world for our eternal good god allows evil to exist for the good of his people by using the existence of evil to conform them to become like Him. God ordains His people to suffer and endure evil so that by trusting Him and enduring trials and overcoming evil, we become more and more like He is. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. When God allows suffering in the life of His people, it is because He is purposing their eternal good and who they become in Christ is 10,000 times more valuable than your present comfort and a life on earth without any suffering. One example of this from Scripture is when Jesus comes to warn Peter about a time of testing that is coming upon him and Satan wants to afflict Peter. And we saw this already earlier. But notice what it says, Luke twenty-two thirty-one: Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Satan wants to destroy Peter. And rather than God just saying, no, you cannot touch Peter, he is mine. He permits it and then warns Peter about it. That's like instead of taking the gun out of the hand of the perpetrator, you just put a bulletproof vest on the victim. Like, Why don't you just stop, stop the perpetrator? Because God has a purpose in this. God does it this way because what he has in mind is what the affliction in Peter's life is going to produce. Peter, being sifted by Satan, tried and frustrated and tempted and failing and repenting and trusting again and finally overcoming, is more important for Peter's benefit and the benefit of other believers that he's going to strengthen than if Peter was kept from Satan altogether. In other words, there is a divine purpose in the sifting. When Peter endures the affliction of Satan, he will be more capable of a spiritual leader 
and more able to strengthen the other disciples. If Peter's faith is increased by going through a turbulent spiritual storm, then that increased faith is of more value than if Peter had not endured the tribulation in the first place. And so Peter goes through these trials. Peter has faith at times. He fails at times. He honors the Lord at times. He dishonors the Lord at times. There's spiritual battle. There's the flesh that he contends with. And then he overcomes. And then he matures. And then he looks more and more and more like Jesus. To the point that he writes a letter to the churches and he says, your tribulation is much more precious than gold. The testing of their faith is more precious than gold because of what it produces. He even says later in that same letter, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, I was thinking about this a lot this week. And the glory to be revealed is not only outside of you, meaning when Christ returns, but I think He's talking about the glory that's going to be revealed from inside of you. The glory of Christ from within you for how you endure through the different trials. Trials reveal the glory of Christ in you. This means that Satan's trials and temptations and afflictions exist, at least in part, for your eternal benefit. They're not just some unfortunate happenstance. They're not just some bad luck that has no other purpose. If God ordains trials in your life, if Satan is permitted to afflict you, it is because God has a greater purpose in mind and the outcome will be greater than if you were never afflicted in the first place. Think about Job. Job didn't suffer because God was just bored one day. God was at work in his affliction. Now, I just jotted down a few reasons. This took me maybe five minutes, probably three. What benefit could it be that Job was afflicted? I wrote down ten. Bet there's a hundred. Job was afflicted to demonstrate his good character. Job was afflicted to show that Satan was a liar. Job was afflicted to humble him. Maybe to increase his dependence upon God. Maybe to reveal what was in his heart. Because that comes out later in the book. Maybe to prove his friends wrong. His friends gave him terrible counsel. They were accusing him. Maybe to instruct a thousand generations of believers like you and me 
that we read of this man's afflictions and we learn something about God. For Job to be an example to God's people, example of humility, to multiply Job's rewards in future glory, to honor him in this age and in the one to come. So Satan's affliction, which he meant for evil, God meant for good, and it had a myriad of purposes within the will of God. Just like your trials and your temptations. Do you believe that? Listen to what James says. James 5.11 He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, isn't this interesting? James mentions God's purpose here. He's talking about Job, and he's talking about the purpose of the Lord, and he does not even mention Satan. So that means James sees God as the one orchestrating these events. Check this out. Consider this. Look what it says back in Job chapter 1, verse 8. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Chapter 2, verse 3. God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan was doing what? Wandering around the earth, looking for someone to beat up. And God says, what about Job? God offered up Job, but not to hurt him, not to punish him, but to bless him ultimately. James talking about the same thing. He calls God. He says, have you seen the purpose of the Lord? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What does he mean? Maybe he means that God's attitude towards Job is one of blessing and mercy. Maybe he just means that God never purposed Job for suffering, ultimately speaking. Or maybe he's referring to how Job's story ends. After 35 chapters of dialogue and bad counsel from Job's friends, Job's defending himself in there. Job wants his, his, his audience with God. He wants to defend himself and bring forth his case. God shows up and brings everything into the light. And this is how the story ends. Chapter 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him 
for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Why is that slide missing again? Look at this. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. What? This is the same author who wrote chapters 1 and 2. This is the same author who explains to us that Satan is the one that raised up the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans and the wind and the lightning and the affliction on Job's person. Doesn't even mention Satan at the end. Verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Verse 15, And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So God gives Job at the end double of everything he has. Doubles the sheep, doubles the oxen, doubles the camels, doubles the donkeys, even his children. Ten in heaven and ten more on earth. Now this is a blessed man and I think I think this is a glimpse of the future glory that God has prepared for all of those whom he afflicts. I think in the wisdom of God, in the greatness of God, in the mercy of God, he allows us to be afflicted and Satan as an agent is involved in that affliction. But God's long-term purpose for you is blessing and multiplying your blessing. And it might be in this life like Job or it might be in the future, but it is going to be good nonetheless. God has more in mind for you than just 80 years upon the earth. God is thinking about your future 10,000 times 10,000 years from now. And He is presently crafting your life, including your afflictions, to create for you a greater weight of glory. A greater capacity to enjoy God and to enjoy His presence forever. Now you may say, I have trouble reconciling God and and evil. I have, God, I have trouble reconciling God using evil. And if that's the case, then you'll never understand the cross. Because God took the greatest evil ever conspired by Satan, ever conspired by sinful man, and He turned it into the greatest good imaginable. Your heavenly glory. Billions and billions and billions of people and their eternal joy and their eternal blessing in the greatest act of evil imaginable. And was God involved in that? 
You bet he was. Of course he was. Scripture says he was. Now, I think there are at least two responses to this teaching. There is accusation. God is to be dismissed as an evil tyrant who could eradicate suffering but doesn't. There are people in this world who love to accuse God, they love to blame God, and they refuse to submit to God because He allows evil to exist. So that's one response. Accusation. The other response, I believe, is worship. God is to be praised even though you don't understand everything, even though you don't see everything that's going on, even though you don't know all of the details of what God has planned for you for the future, but you're trusting that He's good. You know that He's good. And because He's good, He deserves your worship. So in the face of suffering, who will you be like? Kevin Carter, the photojournalist who cursed God and could not reconcile the goodness of God in a world of suffering? Or will you be like Job, who says in the book of Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, who can know the mind of God? But you have revealed these things so that we may have some understanding, so that we may recognize, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things and that we can praise you for the good that happens and we can praise you for the evil that happens. Because you and only you can take what is evil and turn it into eternal blessing. And so, Lord, this life is not long, but it sure can be hard. Please help us, Lord, as we seek to trust you in this life. Give us faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.